Hey friends, this is Brenna Blaine and you are listening to season four of Can I Say That? Have you ever felt so strongly about, it's Brenna, hey, I should say that first. Hey guys, it's Brenna. Anyways, have you ever felt so strongly about something that you knew nothing about, that you were completely uninformed on, but you're like, I need to say this because you are young and unwise. That was me. That was actually how I met today's guest. Uh, About half a year ago, maybe more than that. I know it was recent. I just want to let you know, I'm still making mistakes in life probably still will be for a while. Anyways, pray for me. I got on Twitter. Bad start. Don't start with that. I got on Twitter and I decided I'm going to share about my opinion on ghostwriters in Christian literature, which I think is unethical. That was my whole thing. And Ashley, who is one, so incredibly gracious and kind and gentle, approached me from her perspective, which is she is a ghostwriter and she loves Jesus and she felt called to that job and she did that job well. And she's just said, hey, I want to offer my input. And I felt very strongly in that conversation on Twitter, which again is never good, that I needed to be right. And then at the end of that conversation, Ashley just said, hey, I'm looking forward to seeing you in New York. And I went, whoa. What? Turns out Ashley and I um, would actually be sharing a stage together at a conference a few months later. And I got there and my seat was right next to Ashley. And I sat down and she is the most gracious, caring, and just warm person that I met when I was in New York. And I sat there with like, so much embarrassment and like grief going, Hey, I'm, I felt like I needed to be right in this conversation. And I'm really realizing like, I don't even know what I'm talking about. And I am so sorry. And instead of having like this entire awkward, like weekend in New York, I actually got to know one of the greatest women that I know. And that just happens to be Ashley Abercrombie. Ashley is a writer whose work and story has been featured in various magazines and digital outlets, including Darling, Oprah Mag, Relevant, and Grit and Virtue. And she was a ghostwriter on nine books, edited a dozen more, and successfully has helped clients prepare book proposals to win agents and publishing deals. Ashley, when she was at this conference, she ended up talking about body. And for me, as someone who's grown up in the Christian world as a young woman, whenever I see the topic of body or body image paired with Christianity, it is almost intrinsic that I just roll my eyes. And as I sat there listening to her speak, it was like experiencing something I'd never, I'd never heard a Christian woman talk about body and body image in the way that she did. And I just knew I had to bring this conversation to, can I say that? So today I am so excited to introduce you to my dear friend, Ashley. Okay, Ashley, I got to meet you and actually speak at the same conference as you in New York just a few months ago, and 
I have heard a lot of people speak about body image, but when you sat down and opened your mouth, I experienced something that I have never experienced before in my life. And the entire time you were speaking, I was like, I wish so badly that this was recorded because there are so many people that I just wanted to hear from you. And so I would love to just start, like, can you tell us your own story and kind of highlight the ways in which body image has become a topic so dear to you? Mm, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. And I really enjoyed connecting with you in New York and getting to meet you and hear you share and listening to your story. And you're such a powerful person and an incredible mother. I love following you online and watching you with your kiddos and just think you're so human. So thank you for having me for this conversation. Um, I think that, you know, growing up in the South, so I was raised in the Southeast. I was born and raised in North Carolina. And then I spent all my time there in like a small town and then in a very big city for college. And what's beautiful about a small town is that you have this wonderful community. You have all these people who know you, who care about you, you like we were very much raised in a village like I would like to write a book one day called all my mothers because I feel like all of my friends were my mothers the extended women in my family were mothers like it just felt like you know we're all so connected and the danger of that for me was that I was very known and not known at all and I didn't have the language and the tools that I needed to really communicate things that hurt me or pain that I felt in my heart or discomfort that I was feeling or anxieties or depressions or a desire to self-harm. Like I didn't have language or tools to navigate any of that. And all of that stuff are things that you kind of silence and shame yourself for. And so I think that's the context I want to share from which on top of that was culture laid on top of me. You know, I grew up in the late eighties and nineties and, you know, that's the time of the supermodel waifs and where, you know, bodies were very much supposed to be very lean and tall and skinny. And in some ways I totally fit that mold. I'm six foot two, I'm thin, but at the same time, it was never enough. Like that standard on top of culture always felt like I, I could never really meet this sort of perfect ideal that I wanted to meet. And the, the underlayer of kind of the traumas that I experienced and the difficulties that I went through and kind of the family struggles that we had meant that I was always trying to fix problems and control my environment through things like image. And through things like, you know, controlling what I looked like, controlling what I wore, controlling the kind of makeup I had on, controlling the way I did my hair. And, you know, it's it's interesting to kind of be raised in that context. And then we have the family of origin context. And at that time, in that generation, the women in my family were very much accustomed to talking about women and mentioning the way that they looked and saying what they thought was beautiful. And not all of it was bad. But then what I took away from that in my mind is this is the type of thing that is valuable. And this is the type of thing that is ugly. And this is the type of thing that's good. And this is the type of thing that's bad. And I would measure myself against those things. And when I moved out of my home and went into college, I developed an eating disorder and spent four years navigating um, bulimia on top of a bunch of other addictions. And thankfully, I'm 20 years sober this year, which is its own miracle. But navigating an eating disorder, navigating my issues with control, navigating this kind of desire to change my life, you know, I moved out to Los Angeles and spent 22 years between LA and Manhattan. And what I've learned in that time about who I am and about what my story is and about kind of my healing from addictions and my recovery journey and my capacity to get back into healthy relationships and really understand my value and to not judge myself about 
and, and measure myself by how I look or what my pant size is or what the, the scale says or what my family member thinks or what culture says I should look like. I think what I've really learned is this radical self-acceptance and radical knowledge that I think comes straight from knowing God and straight from being in a community that really loves you for who you are and not what you look like and what you can contribute, but really for who you are. I've learned that my, the sum total of my value is not in my image and it is in my integrity. It is in who I am. It is in the way that I you know, navigate and relate to others. It is in the way that I pursue the things I'm passionate about and the way that I love people and the way that I love myself and the way that I love God. Like I have a more expansive capacity to accept myself and to accept others. And we are just all so different. <laughs> we are all so different. The way we're shaped, the way that we're made up, the way that we connect, our backgrounds, our cultures, like we're all so different. And that kind of exposure to people in the three regions of the U.S. has also given me this really radical perspective of just like, wow, we're so uniquely made and there's so much value there. And there's so much wisdom there. And there's so much learning I can do from people who are not like me, who don't think like me, who don't, who don't vote like me, who don't believe like me. And I think that kind of acceptance has really shaped my story. And recovery forces that, you know, 20 years of doing recovery practices, you know, one of the, one of the first things you realize as you come out of denial is that you don't actually have the power to fix change or save anyone or anything. <laughs> I am in charge of myself and that's really it. <laughs> and I have responsibilities to people, to my children, to my community, but I can't fix them. I can't save them. I can't change them. And so again, it comes back to acceptance. And sometimes that gets a bad rap in our culture, like radical self-acceptance and tolerance and inclusion. And it gets all these, you know, kind of bad raps around it, but there's a real beauty in actually accepting how you were created and who you are and what you look like and the way your thighs are shaped and the way that your tummy might be round and the way that your hair grows and the color of your skin. And, you know, all of it is beautiful and all of it is God given. And all of it comes from something that's so much higher than culture and so much higher than our family of origin and so much higher than that we were raised in. Um, and I appreciate that about God. His, his wide open arm stance is something I really, really love about him and something I really, really want to be a regular practice in my life. We're going to get more into this kind of theology of looking at ourselves and our body and like our carnate being. But I, I, I want to just start by asking, you know, for forever, I always thought it was just women who dealt with body image issues. But why do you think so many humans, men and women, especially in Western culture, struggle with body image? I think that, you know, in your, again, your home of origin shapes the way you think. And that is the place that you learn about your value. It is the place that you learn what the people in your family who are your caretakers and the people that, you know, you learn your inner voice from how they talk to you, how they speak to you. You, you begin to develop this kind of inner world based on how they value you and how they cared for you. And their perspective shapes how you see and then that's also true in, in the formation of school. Like you go into school, whether you were homeschooled or you were um, in a private school or a Christian school or a public school, that shapes you. Those teachers in that classroom sort of communicate what's valuable and they celebrate certain things. So you know what success looks like and you know what achievement looks like and you know what failure looks like and you know what mistakes look like. And it's kind of defined for you. That happens in after school programs. It happens in you know your faith community if you were part of one when you were raised. 
And all of those things are teaching us our value. And they're teaching us, um, unfortunately, also a hierarchy, a way of relating, a way of pointing out, and this is so consistent in the West, what is the best? What's first and what's best? And then we spend our lives, men, women, and children, trying to get to what is the best and what is first. Now, how can we be first? How can we be right? How can we be the best? And what that ends up creating, because ultimately you're going to fail at that on such a consistent basis that you live in perpetual disappointment with yourself and with others. And so it kind of creates this dynamic where you are always striving and you are never in a posture of acceptance and never in a posture of surrender and never in a posture to receive grace or to receive mercy because you are constantly striving to be something that you're not and constantly striving to be something better or be something more. And you can't get to a place where presence is where you live and where you dwell and where you want to be with God and with others. And so I think it's just the way that we're raised and the ethos that drives culture and the ethos that drives the West is that first best right kind of. Um, and, and that's why so many people, I believe, are stuck in shame and stuck in fear and stuck in, um, you know, addictions and need for approval and, you know, all the different things that come alongside that is because they're, they're striving desperately to achieve something that's impossible. And they're striving, you know, striving so desperately to be perfect or striving, striving so desperately to prove somebody wrong or to, you know, make somebody proud. And again, you can't just, you're never relaxed. You're never calm. You become a human doing. You're like a machine instead of a human being. Um, and so I think it, it's good to reorient ourselves around God's presence and to reorient ourselves around the practice of presence in our daily lives, because being where you are right now is the thing that you have full control over. You know, <laughs> it's the thing you have full control over. Like we are here together right now and I'm not anywhere else. <laughs> and allowing that to shape my moment and not be thinking somewhere else, being somewhere else, trying to get somewhere else, knowing something else is coming, just settling down. So I think that that is actually why people struggle is because they are always under an impossible standard. I want to, I want to get more into that as Christians, like how is the fact that Jesus came down, lived a human life, experienced what we experienced, died on a cross. How is that good news for those of us who struggle with body image issues? How can Christians respond differently to the challenges that come with having a physical body in a broken world? So I really love this question because honestly, Brenna, like 10 years ago, I would have had a completely different answer. Mm. And it would have been so much sharper and easier and um, certain. And now as like a mother of three in my early 40s and someone who has um, a very present sickness and things that I navigate and deal with on a daily basis, I think that question has become so much more relevant. And I don't pretend to have all the answers to this, but I do think this idea of Jesus having a broken body is actually such a good comfort to us because we have a broken body. And the reality is like our body will evolve. It will change. It will age. You know, like our face will change. You know, the way our butt hangs is going to change. You know, the, the things that happen to our bodies, you know, whether we've had children or not had children, we're just growing, like we're going to look differently. And I think that if we center ourselves on this idea of, you know, being perfect and staying young and, you know, like that is, 
in some ways, fine. You like, do you like Botox? Get Botox. Good for you. Like, I don't care in that sense. But if you center the entire sum total of your value on that, it begins to um, eat away at you. And again, it becomes another impossible standard that you can never meet. And so I think the comfort for me of God in human form is that one, he didn't have to do it. Like he didn't have to come down and understand our weaknesses. Like he says, he didn't have to, you know, come down so that we would know we have a high, pra- a high priest who's acquainted with our pain and understanding of our issues and understanding of our temptations and our needs and our struggles. Like he gets us like that always gets me because we have a God who gets us like that is so radical that the creator of the universe, like heaven and earth, someone who's so capable and omniscient and omnipresent and sovereign and good and holy gets us, like understands the pain that I feel in my body, understands the struggle I had with addiction, understands how difficult it is to be vulnerable in a body. Like he understands it all. And that gives me great comfort. So the fact that he didn't have to, but he did, that we serve this like humble king who truly loves us and wants us to know that he gets us is really powerful to me. And the idea, of course, you know, of, of conquering death and the, the idea of resurrection. And even though resurrection might look different for everyone, because we know in reality that sometimes when diseases are diagnosed, people don't get healed. And have disabilities that they live with for their whole life. And, you know, as your body ages and change, there's not a reversal on that. It just is what it is. It's part of being human. It's part of going the distance and, you know, being in this journey with God for the long haul and with others on this planet. Like this is what it looks like. The body ages. (laughs) It's moving towards heaven. It's moving towards its end, not its beginning. And I think that that idea of resurrection becomes so much more important to us, not because body will be resurrected to what it used to be or some standard that we have in our mind that we need to achieve, but that we will be resurrected in our spirit and in our livelihood and in our vitality and in our capacity to love and be loved and in our connection to others in our relationships and in the restoration we experience in our families of origin and in the, in the, you know, capacity we can receive grace and mercy in our brokenness and in our broken bodies that God that he's for us and that he gives us the capacity to accept ourselves and accept our reality and to live with hope anyway. And so for me, that, that feels like good news. And, you know, I'd be remiss not to mention community here because I think the only reason I'm sober and remotely sane is not because I have a relationship with God, although that is a primary part of it. It is because I'm in relationship with others who love me. And through their love, I experience more of who God is. And through their love and their understanding and their grace and their acceptance, I get an in like an, a direct window into how Jesus loves me. It's so important that, you know, it's both and. I, I get sad when I see Christians trying to like, you know, do this like just me and God thing. And um, it, it, there may be a time and a season for that. I've experienced it for sure in times of pivoting or transitioning or moving cities like it's very real, but it's for a time because we are created to experience God through others. And if you want to experience the fullness of who God is, you have to experience that fullness with other people. Like that's how he created it. That's how he made it for us to see each other and be loved in our weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And for us to experience mercy when we've made a mistake and for us to experience somebody loving us and for us to grow in our capacity to forgive and grow in our capacity to give mercy and grow in our capacity to accept others as they are in the bodies that they have. Like all of this 
is so important to the gospel, to resurrection, to the good news. For the person who is listening, who's going, I want that so badly. I just don't know where to start. What, what would be your advice for them? Or like, what is, you have 20 years of sobriety. So what are those like daily practical things that you stepped into that have made a difference? You know, in the social services sector, they talk about something called wraparound support. And I'm, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a you know, psychologist, but I love that phrase wraparound support, because what I would encourage you is that it's not going to, to be one thing that does all the healing. It's not going to be going to therapy that completely heals you. It's not going to be going to church on Sunday that completely heals you. It's not going to be, you know, getting married that heals you or, you know, getting your dream job that heals you. It's going to be this really beautiful and brutal combination of a bunch of things. You know, it'll be a support group that you might attend because you really want to face your addiction for the first time. And, and you add some therapy or spiritual direction to that. It'll be being brave in a few of your relationships where you, you have the sense that there's enough safety and trust that you could open up and go a little deeper. So you communicate, you know, for the first time, you know, I'm really struggling and here's how I'm in so much pain. And I haven't known how to say this out loud to you, but I really need to, because what I need right now is some support and some care friends. Can, can you be there for me? Um, and being brave that way and pushing past, um, you know, boundaries, but not in an inappropriate way, in a very loving way. And here's how I'll, I'll, I'll share a great story about this. Um, when I first was walking out of my journey of addiction, I met this um, beautiful woman and we became friends and it kind of felt like we had a really good connection. You know, those friends that you meet that you're like, oh, I think we're going to have a friendship. Like this is going to be thing. And it was a really beautiful time. And she called me one day and just said, Hey, um, how are you doing? And at the time I was incapable of reciprocal relationships and I was absolutely incapable of sharing my needs and sharing what was going on in my life for real. I didn't like to talk about myself. I was very afraid to burden people. And, um, so I did what I always did. And I just said to her, I'm fine. How are you? And I began to ask her a bunch of questions so that the tables were turned and our whole conversation centered on her. And she was picking up like precisely none of the BS that I was putting down. And she called, I mean, she showed up at my door 10 minutes later and knocked on the door. And when I opened, she just like, I saw her standing there and I fell into the floor and burst into tears because I was absolutely not fine. And she got down on the floor with me and she began to cry. Like she had such an empathetic heart. She could sense what I was feeling and she could experience my pain with me and could be present in it. And she didn't offer me five steps to healing and, you know, six, six, uh, you know, podcasts I should listen to about addiction. She just sat with me. She didn't try to fix me, save me, change me. And in that, she taught me that I didn't have to be perfect in order to be loved. And she taught me that I could come to God as I was not after I gave myself up, but as I was. And we sat together and I told my story to her for the very first time. Like I'd never said all the things out loud. It was the first time. And so I think people who are willing to just see past what's presented to them and ask a second and third question and show up in your life and the people that you feel willing to do that with, that's major. Um, and the final thing I would say, because I know um, there's no linear process to get these kind of wraparound support that you need. There's no linear. Um, I would just want to communicate to you that you're not alone. And even when it feels like 
it, even when you feel so isolated. And even if you've made the decision towards healing or you started a journey with Christ and you've decided like, okay, I'm going to turn my life around and you feel stuck between two worlds, like the world that you used to be in and the world that you're headed toward and you feel lonely and isolated in that place. I want you to know that you're not alone and that God's grace really is sufficient for you. It is so in your weakness. And God is able to give you this comfort and this power of the Holy Spirit that will allow you to endure as you grow, as you change, as you transform. And, you know, you got to trust the process. Like healing takes what it takes. Recovery takes what it takes. You know, accepting yourself takes what it takes. You can't be like, in six months, I'm going to be totally healed. No, you're not. Because <laughs> that just isn't how healing works. <laughs> And so just trust the process one, one day at a time, one step at a time, as we say in recovery. <laughs> so I am in this season of life where my boys are very curious. And I've noticed that my oldest has started to ask questions like, mom, you get on the treadmill every day. How come mom, what are you doing? You're standing in front of the mirror. It's very, it's been very interesting and very convicting. And so for us who are moms, what is the impact on how we treat our bodies, like the way that we use them, the way that we look at them, the way that we speak about them? What is that impact like on our children? You're asking such um, good questions because, you know, a lot, like I said, the way that our parents or caregivers speak to us or don't speak to us forms our inner voice. And so it, we learn how to talk to ourselves based on how they value us and how they love us. And sometimes what's challenging about that is that if you have a parent, um, you know, maybe a male figure in your life who speaks about women in, in specific ways, maybe they objectify women, maybe they um, speak about, you know, how women's bodies look or how they should look or what's ugly and what's pretty and what's beautiful and not beautiful, or maybe you have um, a a female caretaker in your life who is constantly critiquing herself. She doesn't like the shape of her thighs, but you have her thighs. She doesn't like the the way her hair flows or the way it curls, but but you have her hair. And start to hate the things that she hated about herself. And she's not intending to pass that on to you. It's just what naturally happens because our caretakers form our inner voice. And so I think as parents, a couple of things that I personally adhere to is that we don't talk about bodies in any kind of way. Like we are very open to conversations about what's happening with your body. If something hurts, if, you know, something feels strange, like we definitely talk about that, but we don't comment on bodies. So I don't I, like, I, I can't think of one time in front of my children that I've been like, oh my gosh, that person is so beautiful. Wow. Their legs are so fit. Look how they're running. Like, I just don't do it because I want my kids to inherit this idea that all bodies are different and all bodies are acceptable and all bodies are okay. And that bodies are made differently, that they are, some are big and some are small. And some people are tall and some people are short. Some people are everything in between. Sometimes hair is red. Sometimes skin is black. You know, like I want them to understand that a body is beautiful no matter what the body looks like. And I want them to value that image in others. So that's one practice that we have. And the other one is I make sure that I don't talk bad about myself. And this goes beyond the body, uh, but I make sure that I don't talk bad about myself in front of my children. So I don't, even if I feel bad about myself, I don't comment out loud to my children how I'm feeling about myself. So um, 
you know, it's one thing to say, for example, you know, gosh, I'm, I'm really struggling today. I'm feeling so tired and exhausted and my body just can't keep up with all the demands on it today. Like that's one way to talk about your body to your kids that feels very safe and healthy. And then to say, gosh, I'm feeling so, um, inflamed and awful because of what I'm dealing with in my body today. It, it gives them this picture that like, oh, okay, if my body feels inflamed, that's bad and it's ugly and it's not okay. So can you see the difference? Like one is sort of shame based and one is just acknowledging a reality that feels challenging. So we try to, to ride that line as much as possible so that our children don't inherit the, you know, kind of negative things about culture in the body. Yeah. The, the final thing I would say is if they bring something home from school and I don't, I can't remember how old your kids are, Brenna, how old are they? Two and five. Okay. So they're still too little, but when they go to school, they'll hear things from other kids. Like I can remember, um, the first time that one of my boys came home and said, um, you know, mommy, what does the word fat mean? Um, because somebody had called another student fat in the class. So we talked about how bodies are different and that it's okay for bodies to be different and that there's not a set standard for how thin or not thin a body should be, that that God creates bodies differently and everybody looks differently and every person is dealing with unique challenges that we don't know about um, and that there's nothing wrong with being a certain size. And so we explain this to them and talk about how that word can feel hurtful to another classmate. And inviting them next time they hear that to stand up for that classmate, to say something back to the person. So just helping them navigate the cultural things um, that kids tend to do, because again, they're hearing it in their household or hearing it on a TV show. Like kids don't just come out the gate making fun of other bodies. Uh, but those are some of the practices that we have. And I love that you're on the treadmill every day. Like I do yoga with my daughter um, and I love it. Like it's a practice that we have and we do it because we want to be healthy and we do it because it calms our mind and we do it because it keeps us sane and sober, you know, and I think all those things at an age level, um, you know, at whatever's appropriate for their age level is good to say, like, mommy does this for her sanity. Like if I don't get on this treadmill, I'm not going to stay sane today. And it just makes me feel good in my body. You know, like those are the things that are great. <laughs> So those are some of the practices that we personally have. But my last question on the topic is I've been struggling with kindness to myself. Okay, so... This for me has grown with age. So I wish that I could tell you, like in my 20s, again, I would have had a very different answer. I'd be like, I'm I'm in it with you. I'm trying to figure out how to be kind to myself. I'm trying to figure out how to not demand more than I should demand of myself. Um, you know, I, I struggled and also coming off of addictions, you know, that's that's the hardest thing to do is to be kind to yourself. Like when you have struggled for so many years or when you have experienced shame or self-loathing or hatred towards yourself or, you know, the wide variety of things that just humans experience um, and, and traumatic events in our life, like all of this, again, forms how we think about ourselves. And it, it feels challenging to be gentle towards yourself. And I was a perfectionist to a T. I mean, it was crippling perfectionism. And it demanded so much of me that I couldn't do. I, I took on so much more responsibility than I ever should have. I felt so responsible for everything and everyone. And honestly, even as a believer and a young minister, I personally would take on so much more responsibility than I should have. I felt responsible 
responsible for people's souls. I felt responsible for their lives. I felt responsible for their callings, you know, and we have to be responsible with our influence, but we are not responsible for the choices that people make. (laughs) They have their own life and they have their own responsibilities and they have their own capacity to make decisions. And again, we're not here to fix, save or change anyone. Like we, we actually don't have the power. That's the power of Spirit does that. That's not our power. And so I think that journey of kindness for me um, has been back to what I shared in the beginning, has come back to acceptance, where it's like, this is my limitation. And what is wrong with limits? You know, what is wrong with limits? What is wrong with, you know, coming to the end of yourself and also accepting that I didn't have the same capacity every day. And particularly as an, as a young mom, um, and especially when I had my third baby in 2020, the year of our Lord, that was terrible that, that year, um, you know, I really learned like my capacity is not what it used to be. And I need to stop resisting that and accept it. I need to accept that my home life has grown in such a way that I no longer am capable of doing the things that I used to do. And I don't, I no longer have the margin or the energy to do the things that I used to do. And I had to really get honest with myself about my weaknesses and my limitations. And again, what would keep me sane and sober? And I have to make decisions in light of those things. Um, So again, it gets, it gets easier with time because you get to this place where you don't want to please people anymore and you don't care what they think. And that is its own freedom. But this idea of being kind to yourself, I think starts with accepting your weaknesses, accepting your limitations and allowing them to be okay. And I'm a very high capacity person. I get stuff done. So I'm not saying that I opt on the other side of it where it's like, okay, Sarah, Sarah, I'm just going to lay down and let life happen. You know, that's so not my style, but at the same time, I've really had to be more measured in my approach life. And that has given me room for kindness, um, to be a person who makes mistakes, who fails, who doesn't have energy sometimes, who needs a nap sometimes, (laughs) who yells at her kids sometimes, you know, just like giving myself real room to be a human has been really helpful in the journey of kindness. I know so many people who are just being introduced to you through this podcast are thinking like, how do I find you? How do I hear more about your story, about your ministry? So could you just tell us that before we say goodbye today? Yes. Um, well, I, I write on Substack every week because I really love that platform and it allows me to go a click deeper than like an Instagram caption or something, you know, and I can say the things in the tone that I'd like to say them without getting attacked on the internet. So I write a weekly newsletter called After Hours and I really love that online neighborhood is what I call it because it feels like a safe place to journey and show up together. And it's really um, an emotional support newsletter for people in a hard place, um, for people who need hope in a hard place. And I really love writing there. And um, I spend a lot of time on Instagram. That's my other spot that I really enjoy. And I have a couple of books and a few Bible studies on version. If you're interested in that, um, if you're looking for you know, just a free resource that you'd want to go through for seven days. I have a couple of those on the internet as well. So yeah, lots of places we can connect and I would, I would really love and enjoy connecting with you people. Can I say that? It's a podcast created by my mom, Baba. If you'd like to hear more about my mom and fantasy, you can go on Instagram and show it. Bun on my head or go to www.bradboy.com.